Welcome to 360 Conversations. This is a podcast featuring powerful conversations with busy women who are simplifying their lives, living intentionally, and creating space for everyday joy. I'm your host, Tamu Thomas, and this is episode nine. Today, I'm joined by Karen Arthur, founder of Red Skin Fashion Label, and we have a really nurturing conversation about many things. Karen is a fashion designer that creates bespoke clothing for women that want to stand out. She's a sewing tutor and runs sewing workshops for people that enjoy sewing and use it as an opportunity for well-being. Karen is a former teacher who left the profession due to the impact it was having on her well-being. After a period of depression, Karen turned to fashion as a means of expression and cultivating wellness. Karen has coined the term, wear your happy, which is the practice of wearing clothes that lift your mood and help you see yourself. She has a number of events coming up that supports her brand ethos, one of which is Wear Your Happy Live, which takes place on the 8th of November, among other things. I'll put the links to Karen's endeavors in my show notes so that you can have a look for yourself and go. They're going to be fantastic. I hope you enjoy this episode just had to pop back on I forgot during the recording of this episode which was so long ago I'm embarrassed I was having building work so there's some really rough editing because there was drilling and banging and some of it just had to go sorry hi Karen hi thank you so much for joining us before I go any further and before I gush about you even more please could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Okay, so first of all, thank you for um, having me. Thank you for coming uh, on. I, so I am a fashion designer. I own that. I'm a fashion designer. I'm a sewing tutor. That's what I tell everybody. Um, I, I was a teacher. I was a teacher for 28 years. Uh, I was a pastoral leader. I worked with girls and uh, boys and in mixed schools, and I ended up being a head of house in a lot in South East London. And now I create clothes for women who come to me because they want to feel special and because they, often because they have an event to go to, mm-hmm. um, but not always. Uh, I often work in colour because that's my favourite, but recent my recent commissions actually have been... Um, I've not been particularly vibrant, but certainly uh, wonderful fabrics and wonderful clients. And I also, I'm very passionate about teaching people to sew. Mm-hmm. I feel there are too many people in this world who have sewing machines and started making something, maybe a cushion or a curtain, and then didn't make anything else because they thought their machine was broken or life took over. Yeah, so they, Yeah, so they've lost their confidence. So I love... I like to think that I'm a fun teacher uh, and I go to people's homes and I kind of get them, give them a little bit of a nudge and get them started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let them get on with it really. So they're the two main things that I do. Mm-hmm. I always said that I wanted to be in a position where I was working for myself by the time my child is making the transition to secondary school because she will need me at home more mm. then than she does when she exactly. is little and exactly. um, so thank you know god universe spirit yeah. that I am now in a position where I do work for myself yeah. I organize my diary around what I need to 
So I am more physically as well as emotionally. Well, I was always emotionally available for her, but the physical aspect to dovetail with the emotional, I'm here for it now. And I, I, I think this is when she'll need it more. Like when your baby's six months, you're making all the choices. When your baby's one, it's a very controlled... But when they're older and they're working home from school, they're forming their own identity, they're making their own sort of pathway. I, I always said need, that. I yeah. always said that um, when I, in terms of my teaching career, I worked an hour and a half away when they were little. And um, as I progressed, I actually moved closer into home. So by the time I... My kids were teenagers. I was working at a school that's at the top of the road. Mm -hmm. And also I knew it meant that um, I was present. I was busy. I could be yeah. if needed to be yes. busy because they yeah. needed more when they were in their teens yeah. than they did when they were tiny. When your kids are tiny, in a sense, anybody, unless you're breastfeeding, and then you can express, uh, anybody can look after them. Yeah. When you get, when they get to their teenage time, they're, they're trying things out. They're trying you out. They're testing all the time, and so it's important that you're in their world, uh, and they know that you're there, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I knew, I knew everybody they knew basically, which yeah. they liked at the time. But yeah, yeah, it worked. <laughs> totally, 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 because those associations can make a huge difference. So yeah. it's really necessary. Yeah. Okay, so. You worked in education for 28 years, um, mm. and in the background, there was always fashion and textiles. Yeah, I, well, I started, yeah. I, okay, so my mum taught me to sew mm -hmm. when I was 15. Um, I developed hay fever when I was 15, so the six weeks was me sneezing a lot, it mm. seemed. Um, I, it, it's funny, I, I, I tell that story, but I now also, and only recently realised that that was also the year that my father left us. Mm -hmm. And I suspect uh, part of teaching me to sew and spending time with me was also a way that we could be together, we could be close. I have younger brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. but I'm the, I'm the eldest. Um, and so we did... She got a little singer out, and we went down to um, the local, ha the only haberdashery. So I was brought up in a small town in Oxfordshire. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, so we went down there, and we picked out a pattern. I remember the pattern, the fabric. I chose a particularly difficult cotton drill. <laughs> of course, I know. Of course, yeah. First thing, and made these gorgeous trousers which I'd probably give my eye teeth to find I should make some more actually um and then just continued sewing my mum had always sewn she she came to London from Barbados in early 60s mm -hmm. and they didn't have much money and so she made everything she mm -hmm. made all the clothes she made I'm laughing because I'm remembering some of the some of the clothes she made <laughs> uh for all of us she made me a crimpline do you know crimpline no crimpline is like a thick uh, synthetic fabric. Anyway, she made sounds me nice. Do out of it. <laughs> so when I got in, it was great when I in the sun. But when I got in the water, when I came out, my crutch was down by my knee. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Crimping. Oh my god! Someone will probably bring that back. But anyway, so yeah. So she. So I started. I'm going to gonna Google it. I designed lots of things. Mm -hmm. I just loved. 
I loved the the immediacy of it. I didn't. Um, I mean, I did work from patterns, but often I just made stuff up, if I'm honest. And I always did that. I did that all through my teens. Mm-hmm. I was amazing outfits. I, I made some outfits that my mother wouldn't let me wear. Uh, I remember there was a, a, a disco, and um, it was fancy dress. And I made a black satin skirt, and I with a zip. That the zip when you pulled it up, you could take the skirt off. Okay. Uh, with a side split, and then how I, old were you? I was sixteen. Okay. Really bad. And then I put I sewed um, the words oh, "rich bitch" what? sequins on the back of this top. And my mum, you were said, before your time. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, but I that's like great. standard attire now. I've got a picture of the design, a, a drawing of the design. I found it the other day in one of my little journals. Um, and I look at it and I think, oh, my God, Karen, what were you thinking? But, hey. But listen, one- I'm just, like, you're, you were ahead of your time. That's like standard attire these days. <laughs> you, you know? So, yeah. So, always sewed. Sewed when I went to uni. Um, sewed when I met my partner. Um, uh, made clothes for my kids, exactly as my mum did. Mm-hmm. And then... One year, my my eldest, the words, the word is primary school, having a summer fair, and they sent letters home saying, "Does anybody want a stall?" And I was like, "Yes, I'll do that." That's mm-hmm. a ten. So I'm. I was. My partner was from Sierra Leone, and hey! his mother. <laughs> and my his mother had a lot of African print fabric, so she gave me a load of stuff, mm-hmm. and I made six of the same design bags. Um, and different colours and an order form and then I it was a lovely sunny day my mum came travelled down from Banbury she made some coconut bread I remember mm. and she was selling that for like 30p and I was going mum you're in London you should sell it for a pound a slice and we had music and it was a lovely day and I sold all the bags wow. and made of orders and I sold those bags for £15 each which is nothing yeah because I was thinking your time yeah, but I uh, yeah, I wasn't there. I wasn't there for a long time, by the mm-hmm. way. That, that took a decade for me to get there. Um, so, and I was hooked. I loved the market scene. Uh, I loved that it was a sunny day. I don't like a market if it's not sunny, so it wasn't for me yeah. <laughs> in the long run. Yeah. Um, I loved the validation. I loved people loving what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was, and I loved being creative and that it was my design. Yeah still have the first one I made uh, which every now and then I bust out when I go out but um, so that was me hooked so I started this little business uh, which I called Redskin Bags and I called it Redskin because uh, I've gone up and down with this name but I own it now Mm -hmm. Redskin was when the the first year I was taken to my mum sent me to Barbados I was 21 she uh, wrote my. She typed my dissertation for me so that I could have this two weeks. She saved up the money so that she could send me what she called back home. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a name I heard a lot. People called me it. Oh, because and, of your complexion. Yeah. yeah. And it and it is it is a word that. And I know there are, you know, there are um, difficulties around. Um, your skin colour and, and, and colourism and being mm-hmm. called a certain thing based on your skin colour. But for me, this is for me now, it reminds me of home. Mm-hmm. 
And so it seemed natural to just tag bags on the end because that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I had that business for a long time whilst I was also working um, at the school. And I did open houses and market stalls and made a little website and, you know, loved Mm -hmm. it. Um, so I want. I just want to um, track back a little bit, um, and then come back again to um, juggling your own business with um, having a full time career, which is damn demanding. You grew up in Oxfordshire. Did it? Um, I did. And yeah. I'm guessing that Oxfordshire at that point in time wasn't very diverse. You think? <laughs> So what was that like? Okay. So my mother emigrated, came to London in 60, 60 or 61. I should probably know that, but I don't. Uh, she was sponsored by, because in those days you had to be sponsored by somebody yeah. who was living here. She, she was sponsored by her dad, who I never met. And uh, then my father, who she wasn't married to at the time, followed her. Mm-hmm. And they got married and they, they did the whole, you know, things you read about about you know answering adverts for for uh, flats and going there and then suddenly they're gone yeah and having things put through your letterbox mm-hmm. and you know living in one room and all that kind of stuff yeah and then my father saw that there were jobs going um general foods which became maxwell house okay birds factory yeah make coffee and angel delight and mm-hmm soups that go in machines you know mm-hmm. and anyway they were advertising and they were advertising with a relocation package i believe in banbury and so my dad moved me and my brother my younger brother and mum and we all moved up to banbury in oxfordshire and we got a little house they got a little house up there and he worked at this factory as a foreman and my mother had two more kids and it was very 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 white mm-hmm. and i didn't really know if i'm honest I had a great childhood, you know. I loved... I was the only... Black, <laughs> I'm laughing because... I'm laughing because I was the only black girl in my school for ages. There were like 2,000 kids in this school. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember one time this girl came to into our class and they put her in my class because she was another black girl. Her name was Juanita. And they sat her next to me, assuming that we would get on yeah. because we were black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a foster... I think she was fostered and she was trouble i was a very 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 good child mm-hmm. um and as in well behaved mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they sat her next to me and she swore and she spoke to me in patois i didn't know what she was saying mm-hmm. i didn't want anything to do with her i didn't understand why she was near me mm-hmm. um and she left after three days and i often think about her and wonder wow. where, what happened to her where she went all that kind of stuff but I, the next black kid who came to school was my brother. So when he came, <laughs> yeah, that was him. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I, I enjoyed school. I had, I was teased. I was bullied. I was, it was racist abuse. But mm-hmm. I would tell my mum about it, and she would do say that classic phrase: "Sticks and stones will mm-hmm. break my bones, but nails will never hurt me." Well, that's not true. But hey, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I was also very academic very good at school and I made a lot of jokes and so I kind of weathered it yeah anything yeah uh, I I yeah I so I enjoyed school and I but, but growing up certainly in Oxfordshire and 
not seeing anybody who looked like me was not something that I dwelled on until I got older. Mm -hmm. I'm able to look at that in retrospect now. I left when I left uh, Banbury to go to uni. I went to uni in Leicester, mm -hmm. and that was the first time I'd seen a lot of black folks in one place. Mm -hmm. I'm honest, I felt out of sorts. I assumed that that would mean that I would be accepted and I would be, these are my people. Mm -hmm. But actually, I was, I didn't have any frame of reference. I didn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't fit. Uh, I found I found it hard. I found it really difficult because they would see me as a, a bounty or a, a coconut, or mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. they would, and and yeah, it was it was shit actually. It was hard. Yeah, okay? it was and I hard. think that's the thing that um, people miss out on because you know at the end of the day, race is a social construct. There's only one race, the human race. Yeah. The difference between us is ethnicity and culture. So if you've been socialised into an environment which is pretty much, um, I don't know, let's just say middle-class white British, that is your frame of reference. And I think it's only relatively recently that everyone, not just non-black people, but black people as well, are really owning the fact that to be black isn't one thing and that it is not a monolith. So yeah, I, the yeah. idea that you're a bounty at that time or you're a coconut or whatever the words were used, which for those who don't know is somebody who is black on the outside, white on the inside. Um, so basically people will say things like you act white or you speak mm -hmm. white. Exactly. That is based on a racist monolith, basically, which is saying to be black is one thing and that one thing isn't academic isn't well-spoken isn't quote-unquote cultured so if you don't fall into a very narrow prism yeah for a long time people would think well then you couldn't possibly really in inverted commas be black and I wasn't able to process on any of that I didn't I thought just I just thought that people didn't like me and I don't when I say people I'm particularly talking about black women mm -hmm. Uh, I, I found that very. I just thought they didn't like me. I didn't make the connection between mm -hmm. the fact that it was because I had a different frame of reference to them. I just, I was, yeah. I just, I found it hard, and, yeah. and I don't mean that I became depressed or I, I dwelled on it. I just made sure that I wasn't around those people. If any, if anything, yeah. you know, I, you know, being when okay. So my parents, when we moved to Banbury, my father wanted to assimilate mm -hmm. my mum did as she, my father said so assimilating me meant not standing out mm -hmm. so stood out that was protection had, yeah you stood out if you had different food you stood out if you dressed a different way you stood out if you spoke a different way so my dad made a big deal about the way in which I spoke my mum made a big deal about the way in which I stood mm -hmm. and walked mm -hmm. uh, our food was uh, fish and chips and and burgers and you know stuff like that and mm -hmm. I remember when my mum tried to get me to eat uh, cuckoo, a Bayesian dish, dish, cuckoo, which is made out of cornmeal, mm -hmm. and it's very popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and they use okra, and they are things that I can't eat and won't eat, um, and didn't like. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the texture. Mm -hmm. It was so different from anything my mum had ever asked me to eat. Yeah. I, why? Why is this happening? I yeah. don't want this to happen. Yeah. And it's something that has carried me into into adulthood. I have a connect. I have a 
a memory of sitting at a table and wanting to go out and see my first boyfriend and mum saying that I couldn't go until I'd eaten all my food and running out of the house um, and getting in a lot of trouble mm. and not eating my food. You know? it's, so, it's so funny, though, that it's a food that is totally um, strange to you because you haven't grown with it and the expectation was that you were just going to eat it because um, okra does have... I don't like the texture and I have... So cuckoo reminds me of fufu. Yes, yes, yes. yes and yes. I have... Um, loads of memories like I grew up eating a combination of let's call it British food and um Sierra Leonean food and okra and fufu I just I don't like the texture of okra like I, I don't particularly like some Chinese dishes because of the gelatinous nature yeah. I don't like that texture at, yeah. at all and I just have memories of sitting there eating it cold and horrible because <laughs> I would get hiding if I didn't eat it yeah. I couldn't I, I couldn't I, I caused couldn't a mini it. storm on Facebook when I put a status about the fact that I didn't like okra I uh, don't I know it's good for you but I don't like it there's yeah. other and rich I, sources of iron there's a way of cooking it that can get rid of the slimy stuff. Yeah. So I'm going to try that, but that's going to involve me buying okra and bringing it into my house. Forget it. There's too much other food out there for me to put myself through that trauma. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not like even... I went to um, Ghana and I went to... I was, I was fortunate enough to meet people that were locals. Well, they were brought up in England but had settled there. So I was able to get a real taste of Ghana, not just me being there as a... Well, I wasn't exactly a tourist. It was a business trip, but anyway. Um, and so, like, look, it just has to happen that they were serving Kenke where I was going. And um, Kenke, like, like fufu, is made from fermented... I don't know what it's made from, but it's fermented. I can't take the sour... The smell, the, the smell, the texture, the taste, uh, any of it. And so they started calling me English and they yeah. would say, let's get some. And I said, I'll eat ground rice, but to eat the fermented, I'm just not, I'm just not with it. So in the end, I ended up practically um, living on anything that was with rice or my favourite, Red Red, which is um, black-eyed beans made with um, either a tomato or palm oil sauce, plantain yeah. and... Um, tilapia yeah, I was yeah, happy yeah. with that <laughs> I was very happy with that but yeah. sorry there's too much food out there um, for me to be forcing myself and there are lots of African dishes out there that don't contain all of that so I don't need to put myself through that trauma good but, yeah so we've talked about living in um, Oxfordshire and then going to uh, Leicester um, I want to go forward again now to um so you were working as a teacher which is a really demanding profession um but you also had your um what we will now call a side hustle um yeah. you were multi-hyphening it with um your textile business How, what was that like because within that you were also mothering oh gosh oh gosh you know what I look back on those years and I wonder how I did it but I did it because I was surviving. I was, um, so towards, where are we? 
yeah, sort of 2000, I suppose, that kind of, you know, early 2000. Mm-hmm. I was teaching, I was doing my pastoral job. I, was, If you know anything about teaching, you know you can't just switch off. So, like, such like social work, so you're literally bringing that home. Yeah. So, in order to, I now realise that in order to look after my mental health, I suppose, I had to be creative. I had to find a way. I had to find a creative outlet. So, my favourite thing was to work and then come home and then design something on the kitchen table and then sit at my sewing machine and so and I still when I sit at the sewing machine there's an there's an exhalation it's like a, a moment for me I have it, 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 it I don't know because yeah it's because I know what I'm doing yeah and it, it feels good yeah it's 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 totally me so that the act of it sounds so silly, but that act of just sitting down, right, I'm ready, and then getting on with it. Because before that, you've either been working really hard at work, you've done some reports, you've you might have excluded someone, you might have dealt with a load of people on the t- on the on the phone, and then you've also done your teaching. Then you've come home, then you've designed something, you've made a paper pattern, you've pinned it, you've cut it, you've chosen the fabric, you've pinned it, you've cut it out, and then you're ready. Mm-hmm. And that's it where you go to the sewing machine, that's mm-hmm. easy. Mm. and so very tangible yeah for me that's always been my I want to say joy Mm -hmm. it's not every day these Mm -hmm. days but certainly it's my happy Mm -hmm. in some senses Mm -hmm. so it kept me sane but in the middle of that my relationship was unravelling as well with my partner so it became I clung on to control it was a way of it was a one thing I could control yeah um and that's a big thing for me um I'm learning to let go of things that I can't control Mm -hmm. and Zimbabwe (laughs) I had to employ that when I was away but certainly certainly, um yeah it was it was being creative is really important to me being able to make something or do something or think of something every day, not necessarily sewing, but often sewing, whether it's designing, uh, whether it's coming up with a way of making something into something else. It might be cooking, but not always, because yeah. cooking my favourite thing. Eating is. But yes. Um, and also, you know, um, something that's really interesting in thinking about um, creative and creativity in these podcasts although people haven't said it what I have found as a common thread is that creativity has been therapeutic for people and we have we can have quite a narrow view of what being creative is so being creative is something to do with art and drawing and that kind of thing Um, but when I was looking on your website and I was looking at your courses and I was looking at the video um, of your learn to sew course even putting that together that is creative you are creating something that doesn't exist and I was creating something for me and I was creating something for my children yeah and I think that that was re- in the late when I finally our relationship dissolved. Um, it was the most important thing to me, and still is, that I showed my girls that if you want to do something, you can get up and do it, and that if you're not, if you don't love your life, that you have the power to change it. That sounds mm-hmm. really icky. No, but it's doesn't. absolutely been my driving force that that. 
you know, I left work because I was unhappy and I was unwell. You know, I left teaching even though I thought I'd teach forever. Yeah. I honestly never envisaged that I would leave teaching, but I had to leave teaching. And I, I it coincided with, you know, menopause and, mm-hmm. and lots of different things. But on the whole, I was killing myself. I was, I was allowing myself to be unwell because I was putting all my energies into a job that, that didn't value me. And so when I... Karen, Karen, Karen. I left, I took, I looked after me and I realised it was the first time in my life that I turned a spotlight on myself. Hmm. Um, Yes, it was because I had to, but actually I, I, I put my all into it. I did mindful meditation. I went away. I stopped doing loads of things. I stopped seeing people. Yeah. I, um... Went into therapy. I, yeah, my and my whole life now starts with how do I feel. Mm. I start the morning with my mental health, and I take it from there because I know if I don't, it'll all go to pop. Karen, firstly, thank you very much for sharing that. (laughs) Secondly, my goodness, I really love the fact that you talked about. basically being a role model for your daughters um I was at a panel discussion I was hosting it and somebody asked me we were talking about legacy and somebody asked me asked about asked me or as long as well as the panel about legacy and it's something that I think a lot about and um for for me legacy I don't just want I, I, I want a living legacy for my child and what you said about your daughters seeing that they could do what they want to do for me that has been so important in my parenting because I got to that crash and burn mental health not being what it should be due to work because I was forcing myself so much to do what I should do Mm. and also with jobs like social work like teaching you've got such a huge responsibility it's not like if you forget a stationary order or you forget to press send or whatever these are actually people's lives yeah yeah. And you become a vessel absorbing yeah. all of that, doing right. your best for them. But then where does it go? It internalizes and it impacts your mental health. And it's such a shame that because they are jobs which being so busy, being run off your feet is almost like a badge of honor. You can't be doing it properly if you're not run off your feet. You can't take the time to notice that it's having such an impact on your mental health. Mm. And I think that it's it's... I'm glad, not glad that it happened to me, you know, having a panic attack isn't nice and all of that sort of stuff, but I'm glad that it happened to me because I can now pay that forward, A, with myself and what you did, really be registering how you feel, and B, create an environment for my daughter and anybody else who witnesses me, hopefully, that you don't wait till you crash and burn be in touch with your feelings so when you know when you're headed that way you can develop a toolkit of things that you can do i think that's really important i think that um i ignored how i felt for a long time and i did as i was told and i did what i should do um for my partner for my kids the kids i was teaching for school etc etc and it got to the point where my body said I didn't make a conscious decision. My body said, yeah. 
I also um, think it's quite generational because I look at the way, so there's big age gaps between me, my brother and my sister. And if I think about the way my sister, who is like the quintessential millennial, um, she was brought up in an environment where it was all about you are valuable how you are. Um, yeah, so I think, we, yeah, we were definitely of the time where your value was based on your output and being of service to other people and neglecting yourself was almost... But also we watch, I watch, okay, so my mum split with my dad and I watched her carry on and get a job and bring up four children with no money, no money, uh, all of whom who were doing well. And so when I, the same thing happened with me, there was no option. That's mm-hmm. just, it didn't occur to me that I would, lie down and it's just what you do isn't it yeah what we do it's what women do it's what yep. black women do yeah so um so i put all my energies into making sure my girls were okay so that uh, that became my they became my absolute world so when you know fast forward what are we nine eight nine years later and i have a breakdown and i end up being diagnosed with anxiety and depression it, it it was like my body was saying, no, that's enough. You, you That's enough. I've had enough. You haven't listened and, to these warning signs, so we're going to shut you down. I'm, it was a horrible time, but I'm grateful to it because I've learned so much. I've learned so much about myself, about the way I operate, mm-hmm. about what works for me and what doesn't. I've mm-hmm. been allowed to, I've been able to give myself permission just to, just to, that sounds, do me. This is all these cliches I'm coming out with now. But it's true. Exactly. Of the shoulds. Should is a very toxic word. Oh, girl. He knows that I, I can't bear that word. Yeah. There's this thing. You do what feels right. Um, and so, and, and in doing that for myself, it means that my girls have been able to see that they can do the same thing. Yeah. So it's about, yeah, it, it, it's a lot of things. But certainly my life is a lot quieter now. There's a lot. It's fuller. Peaceful. It's peaceful. It's calmer. Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I do. On the whole, what I want to do, mm-hmm. I do the normal things like worry about money and things like that. That's that's just normal. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, money has never been my motivator. I've never been someone who, you know, some people say, I want to make lots of money. Mm-hmm. I want to have. A, I want to retire by the. I've never been that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's face it, you don't go into teaching to make money, do you? But Gosh, you certainly do not. I I always wanted to do what I love. It's just that I didn't realise I wasn't really doing what I love until, let's say, the last, I'd say, a couple of years. Yeah. I'm honest. Yeah. You know. Um, and it, it's a wonderful thing. Mm. It, it, it's a wonderful thing. It's It's wonderful... I get to work with amazing women. I get to have amazing conversations. Mm-hmm. I get to work with fabric, which I love. I get to sew. I get to create. Um, so, I get to things that I normally say yes to. So, yeah, it's good. Sorry, I was, because it just popped, and I thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, two things. So in our sort of pre-chat before we started recording, um, I talked about... Um, what what you see is the difference between your daughters as they are now and in how they care for themselves and their wellness in comparison to you when you were their ages, sort of early, mid-twenties? Yeah. 
it's worlds apart. Mm -hmm. Worlds apart. My daughters are both very in touch with how they feel. Mm. And they're very good at at looking after themselves or recognising that if they don't feel good, they know what to do. Yeah. And they're very open. On the whole, they're very open, I would say. Uh, we talk a lot. And one of my big things is honesty. Honesty is not just about being honest about what you say to people, but it's also about being honest with yourself and really looking at your motivations by doing certain th by what you're doing and also, um, you know, stepping away from your ego sometimes. Listen. So, so I think that... Um, I, God, when I was 23, I didn't know my last, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm, <laughs> good Lord. And 27? Yeah. No, I didn't have a clue. Mm. I was, I thought I was living, but I now realise I was existing. I was in love, you know, and I, I was, I was about to, have, you know, um, have my first child, I suppose, mm. when I was 27. But certainly I didn't have the self-awareness that mm -hmm. my girls had. And lots of, I don't think my girls are particularly different. I think there are lots of self-aware young people out there. I think the word self-aware and self-care is, is a buzz, you know. Yeah. It's very... Trendy. It's very trendy. That's the word I was going to use now. But I, I'm also proud of them that they can, they can be so intuitive. Mm -hmm. And intuitive of others as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think that's an amazing gift, and I think that we should nurture it, nurture it in our young people, and nurture it in ourselves as well. Definitely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent. So, I was nothing like them. Yeah. Nothing like them. They they may feel like they're floundering, but I don't see that. That's not what I see. I, I think they're doing good things for them mm -hmm. and great things. And I I look as as their mother. I look forward to seeing what what else they come up with mm -hmm. and what they get to. You know, as well yeah. as myself, yeah. like, my own life as well. <laughs> and you know what you were saying about the cliches. When I first, you know, I was in my twenties, late twenties, mid late twenties, whatever. Um, when I first started reading um, books which would be classified as self help or personal development, whatever. And um, because I was very egotistical at that stage, and I wasn't self aware at all those things did feel like cliches but as I have been able to open up and actually really take an honest using you know what you talked about being honest with myself the more honest I've been able to become with myself the less cliched those things yeah. feel because they actually you know, they really do fit and when you strip back that really is it and this is, this is the thing, isn't it? You you can feel like it's a you can be a bit of a cliche, but I feel like um, I have to be honest with myself. I spent decades not being honest with myself or with my partner, and I feel that my my overriding goal is that I I you know look at my motives behind things, you know. Um, I, I I just feel that. Too many, too many conversations I had where people aren't honest. Yeah, we, we, no one. Somebody said to me, no one likes to go where the monsters are. No one likes confrontation. No one really wants to discomfort doing things. So, I, I just feel like for me, for me personally, it's important, and I can't be around dishonesty. 
I like all people who aren't tr- at least trying to be self-aware and that's yeah one yeah. of the books that I read um around the time I was really feeling like stuck and lost and whatnot um, was the shadow effect by Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, and Debbie Ford? Writing this down. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant book, and it. When I talk about, and that's one of the things that led to me calling this brand 360, and really taking ownership of the idea of 360 degrees and sitting right in the centre of yourself. The book really looks at your shadows, the things that we try to ignore. And it, in essence, says that if you continue to ignore those things, they just manifest all over the place. Yes. Um, and you, if you understand your shadows and where they come from, you can kind of tap into your subconscious and start to change the dialogue. Um, so, you know, the, the inner critic, the being judgmental of people and all that sort of stuff. It, it really helped me to own and understand the fact that a lot of the more sort of negative elements of my character, like being judgmental, um, being a cynic, constantly analysing things, they were all a reflection of what I was burying inside myself. Um, so I found that, that to be really um, instrumental. Um, and the, I like the fact that you talk about honesty and self-honesty, and that is one of your core values of your brand, um, freedom, creativity, and honesty. Could you tell us why those are your brand values? Um, because my brand is me. My, it's about what's important to me. Freedom to, do, to go in the direction I want to, and freedom for other people to do exactly the same thing I think we spend a lot of our time women spend decades doing as we're told or as we think we should do and I think that sometimes we get to a certain age we get to an age and we feel that um we can't do things in any other way and and we think about what people would say if we went on holiday alone for example or didn't go to that family function because we don't get on with those people all that kind of thing mm-hmm. so we always put other people first we spend all our lives often a lot of our lives putting other people first to the detriment of our own mental health and our own growth and so for me freedom is about stepping out of that and understanding that just because you decide to do things for yourself doesn't mean that you're a bad person yeah you a terrible person and i have spent i've tried hard to be free you know i i I said I love teaching, I, and I still love teaching. I did love teaching, but at the same time, I was being asked to say things that I didn't agree with. I was asked to toe a line that I fundamentally did not agree with, whether it's you have to have five GCSEs or if you don't get certain grades, that's the end of your life, or that's an exaggeration, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you do that for a long time, you you you... At some point, you've got to break out of it. At some point, you, you it, things start to go wrong, and mm-hmm. that's what, that's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So, for me, freedom is freedom to be yourself, whatever that might be. And I don't mean that you're trying to hurt anybody else. It's not about other people. It's about being true to yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, creativity because creativity is everywhere, and creativity is being creative with your life, being creative physically mm-hmm. as in 
but also I think everybody should have the opportunity to be creative in some way, shape or form. Yeah. I suppose you have to be creative about what you think creativity means. <laughs> and honesty, I've said, honesty yeah. is honesty to me is is everything but i think it's particularly about yeah being honest with, with yourself myself, with yourself yeah i think that's important i, I think we we lied i think i've lied to myself yeah so occasions, you i know. have and i think there are many people listening that will be like yeah. mm-hmm. and i i think that um i think therapy helped me learn about me uh, i had a lot of you know light bulb moments mm-hmm. so and it, I, I strongly believe that it was the best, it has been the best gift I ever gave to myself. The most expensive one, that, that said. Yeah, yeah. I've worked every, every penny. I've learned so much about myself. It's changed my relationships with my family and with my children, you know, to mm-hmm. some extent. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, yeah, honesty is the way forward, man. Yeah, totally, it's- dude. <laughs> now, what about wearing your happy? Right, so when I was... Where you're happy, yeah. When I was ill, I noticed that my love of fashion and love of wearing clothes, <laughs> not full stop, but wearing <laughs> that's just weird, um, waned. I noticed, okay, so depression is shit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's uh, for me, it manifests itself in not wanting to leave my home, not wanting to leave my bed. So when I started to... to come through that uh, with the help of you know good friends and and family and my own coming through it reading and Mm -hmm. so on and so I would go outside but I would I wasn't me I would wear my black hoodie I'd have my hair down I'd have leggings on I'd hug the sides of the road I'd try to be invisible and that, that went on for a long time, even when I started to get better. I noticed that when I started to get better, I started to take more interest in how I looked. And I don't mean about grooming per se. I'm talking about I made conscious choices about what I would wear. So I find that there are things in my wardrobe, well, practically everything in my wardrobe now, but certainly at the time, things I would, would reach for were things that were either a particular colour or they belonged to somebody who I loved. Mm-hmm. They reminded me of somebody, or I bought them in a particular place, and it reminded me of a happy thing. So then I would find that I would have to go to functions or wanted to go to functions, um, and I would dress to make myself uh, feel better, if that makes sense. I think wearing, I know that wearing your happy is about wearing something that makes you feel happy. It's as simple as that. But happy doesn't, people assume that it means colour and it doesn't mean that because lots of people, there are lots of people who don't particularly, aren't drawn to colour mm-hmm. or don't understand the power of colour. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that I really like pink and orange. That's the thing. Okay. And I know that they are life giving, energy giving colours. But where you're happy can be something that is close to you. Uh, some some like I have a bangle that I wear that belonged to my late aunt that that when I touch it um, calms me if that makes sense mm-hmm. okay. or if I'm feeling like I have to go into a crowd and I don't I'm not feeling particularly brave I might put a colorful head wrap on I remember going I remember specifically I was meeting someone to go to a jazz festival last year um, jazz Refest. fest 
um, at the South Bank and I knew that when I got there it would be great yeah. and I knew that when I got there I would know everybody and I would have fun but I didn't want to go and I sat on the bed thinking, bed thinking oh, I can't I, I really don't want to do this but I know it'll be good for me I know I'll have a good time music will be amazing amazing people and I show I remember what I wore I put on a bright yellow um, wrap top that I'd made a pair of jeans that I'd also made uh uh, dark coloured jeans and I wrapped my head up in this colourful kante cloth and I stepped out that house and I felt amazing and I, of course when I got there I, look, I looked amazing and I had a great time I'm sure I saw I, pictures of you right and I had to but I almost didn't go mm. and I, I find that fascinating that I almost just stayed in my house mm-hmm. so it, it was knowing that if I make a conscious effort, when we're not feeling good, we choose clothes that reflect that. So often, when you're not you're feeling down, you will choose something grey or dull mm-hmm. or easy to put on. Or do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas if we know we we don't feel well, or if we know we're feeling not great in our head, then if we then make a conscious decision to flip that on its head and choose the opposite of what we would normally choose, that can, I honestly feel that that can make a difference. And there is research, research, there is, that underlines that as well. So where you're happy, I've actually written an ebook uh, that when I work out how the hell I'm going to distribute it, yep. I do that. Um, and please, it is eight ways to do yeah. and it and I'm very very proud of it it started as this tiny little PDF and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger and I thought right this is the thing isn't it I'm, I, it's, it's literally sitting on my laptop and I have to sit down and work out what platform to uh, you know get it out there yeah. little, it's just little tips about what you can do to elevate your mood and how you can use fashion to do that. People think that fashion is vacuous, and it isn't. And it was one of the reasons I couldn't own the phrase fashion designer. One, because I felt I wasn't qualified. I didn't. <gasps> Karen! <laughs> oh, man. I, because I've got a degree in teaching, so I'm a teacher. So when you're yes, not a teacher, yes. how could you say you're a fashion designer? It's... Because I don't have a degree in fashion design, so how could I possibly? So I wouldn't own it. And a very good friend of mine who is also a fashion designer just told me off, called me out on it one day and said, but that's what you do. That's what you've got that's to do. do. Stop, stop it. This is what you do. So, so, but the other reason is because I thought, like many people, many, uh, maybe, I don't know, people feel that fashion, they seem it's glamorous and vacuous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just it's just close. Frivolous throwaway thing, yeah. But it isn't. It exactly. isn't. And exactly. I think that the I think we're just only now tapping into the power of mm-hmm. fashion mm-hmm. Uh, and and how we can use it to enhance our mental health. Mm-hmm. And I believe very strongly in that. And I'd like to do more research on it when I get my together <laughs> yeah well wait, wait, you, you will do so and I think it's really interesting and important that you said that because conversation so a podcast that I recorded with um Sally Beaton um women with sparkle she does something every Thursday on Instagram which she calls sparkle up Thursday where okay. she encourages women to wear sparkly clothes wear makeup do your hair really nicely and okay. she talks about the power that comes with 
doing something that makes you feel special, making sure you look good and making that effort so that you're not in the stuck in the humdrum of every day, which, you know, ties into what you're saying. And, and it's like, also, sorry. It's all right, go on. I believe it's about how you feel. Yes. It, I think looking good is the byproduct of that. Yeah. I honestly feel that we we choose, we don't think about when you first played dress up. You know, when you when you first when you were young and you put, maybe put on your mother's clothes or tried on somebody's shoes or that kind of thing, and how that made you feel. We don't do that as adults. No. We don't. Fit. We pick clothes because they match. We pick clothes for occasions. Yeah. We pick clothes because they were whatever. Yeah. You don't look in our wardrobe. And touch our clothes and think, this is, I want this is going to make me mm-hmm. feel in some way. And I think we we've forgotten how to play dress up because yeah. too busy adulting. Oh gosh, yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think it, it, it's it's important to go back to that idea of uh, buying clothes and choosing clothes and wearing clothes and accessories that make you feel special and fun yes and and lift your mood up and i i and just do it don't worry about what your what the outside world is going to think you look like that's hard because people think that sometimes they think that i'm it's about styling it's not I, i people say i'm a stylish person i i I'll own that, but at the same time, I never thought about it that way. But this isn't about styling. This is about you doing things for you. Mm-hmm. And that does take a certain amount of confidence. And maybe it's something that comes with age. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I certainly feel that I don't give a flying fig. Yeah. <laughs> other people. Because sometimes I, I look at myself and I think, Karen, what, what, what are you wearing? Yeah. I For me, it's about comfort. I'm more, I love I did a clear out yesterday. I have a load of heels just looking at me that I'm not wearing anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I have some very nice trainers. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, but I also like to mix and match textures and mix and match colours. And I'm not too bothered about whether they, they're they actually matchy-matchy. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's me. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that um, we, as women and men, but my focus is women, could could uh, benefit from okay so touching your heart and remembering what it felt like to put on clothes that you love that's what I think as opposed oh. to, as opposed to wearing functionality opposed to wearing mm-hmm. or because you you you're uh, yeah it's one of the things I don't I mean I do a bit of supply teaching and they have dress codes now the schools that I go into and I always find a way to kind of put on some funky socks and <laughs> sneak it in there something that or you know put on some really beautiful lingerie so mm-hmm. something that makes me feel special that no one else can see yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it's your it's I, your I, I mean when I was away in Zimbabwe my way you're happy manifested itself because I was completely out of my comfort zone so every day I was like I, I've got to find a way to to feel good about what I'm doing yeah. or about myself or yeah. build up my confidence. Yeah. So it's a combination of lots of things. So yeah. I'm going to come back to Zimbabwe, but what you were saying about um, about um, wearing your happy in the way that you've described, and 
how it can make you feel and thinking about how your clothes make you feel. Um, a little while back, I was at an inspiration, I was hosting, uh, co-hosting an inspirational you event um, about relationships and self-care. And there was a relationship coach called Victor Granville there. And he was talking about part of the reasons that relationships don't last is because people have forgotten that your relationship should be a source of enjoyment and play. And I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, because lots of people talk about a serious relationship, a committed relationship, a long-lasting relationship, but those things happen when you're having fun and you're playing. And it got me thinking, because I'm at, at this period of my life, I'm really invested in my relationship with myself. Um, and I think I will be forever, but in a, in a really explorative way, I think I'm really just getting to really deeply understand myself. And I thought about what he said in the context of myself, about me being my source of enjoyment and play as well. So when and I also do struggle with the label, not the label, the title designer, for the similar reasons that um, I'm deeply attached to um, my... Uh, experience well not so much my experience but my qualifications yes. but when I was dry designing um what has now been dubbed as um a rainbow dress yes. I actually be bold and say well, hashtag rainbow dress of dreams yes. when I was designing that I thought Tammy you're mad like no one else like who who's who's gonna walk down the road in this pink dress mm. with each movement movement you're gonna see a different primary colour and I was scared but it was what you were saying in our sort of like pre-conversation about being scared all the time yeah. I, I was I was scared I was very mindful yeah. but it was just I, I guess what you were talking about um when I was saying overcoming fear like I don't quite overcome fear but I can't let it stop me because the feeling of not doing what I wanted to do now that I'm aware of how much I have I feel I've missed out by not doing what I want to do I just yeah. can't do that so I've just got to use that cliche book title feel the fear and do it anyway um, but that dress when I was designing it when um, my uh, the lady that I work with made the sample when I walked and it swished and I could see the rainbow that just brought me so much joy there and even go. more joy that I didn't have to start fanning around thinking what top am I going to wear it was just a complete dress I just put on my shoes and my accessories and I was ready to roll yeah yeah I agree I agree I think uh, yeah it's about yeah that the in terms of the fear thing always scared of something mm. um, and that whole fear feel the fear and do it anyway absolutely but I, I say that and I, it's taken me years to get here and I'm, yeah. I don't always do it. I, I like it. My, my comfort zone's cool, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I there are lots of things I wouldn't have done if I'd have if if I'd not ignored my yeah. kind of critic and yeah. ignored my my fear of doing something. And I think that as horrible as my experience was when I was leaving teaching, it's the best. It's also the best thing that ever happened to me yeah. because it's enabled me to do things that I would never have been able to do. Yeah, or, or ever thought of doing. So. So was Zimbabwe one of those feel the fear and do it anyway moments? Well, it was one of those, I'm, I was never not doing it. But the minute I heard uh, Natalie, who runs um, 13 Rhythms, she's a, a business coach, but she also runs our um, 
RE13 Global, which is basically um, a social enterprise. Um, and she has plans to roll it out to different countries in Africa as well. But mm-hmm. she um, started in... Yeah, so basically she goes... She, uh, Natalie, had worked in Zimbabwe. She, sorry, she'd volunteered in Zimbabwe, fallen in love with the place. I wanted to go back and uh, offer her services in some way. And she um, was talking about it, basically. And I... She said she wanted to enable women to create sustainable fashion businesses and they wanted someone who was a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I'm going, that's it, I'm going. I didn't say anything at the time because I'm the kind of person that uh, if once I say something, I'm going to do it. So it's almost like I, I'm, it's an inter- intention as action or the other mm-hmm. way. Uh, so I didn't say anything because I was scared because I can't possibly take a month off of whatever it is I'm doing at the time and go to a country I've never been to and teach people to sew. But I knew that somehow I would find a way. I was also worried about raising the money, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. because I knew it was, I think the minimum amount was I needed was £1,850. That's a lot of money. And I was, you know, thinking about my mortgage and thinking about lots of other things, basically. Yeah. didn't go away. The thought didn't go away. It was compelling. And so when I made the decision, I basically spoke to my girls about it and they both went, uh, you're going, this is you, you're a fashion designer and a teacher, this is totally you. So, uh, yeah, I met Natalie and we got on really well, which was a bonus. So what is the name of the um, project and, and what is the purpose? So the project is RE13 Global um, and... It, it, its purpose is to uh, create uh, sustainable fashion businesses um, for women to empower themselves. Um, the website is 13 Rhythms and the information is all on there. She mm-hmm. has a Facebook page and she also has an Instagram page as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're definitely worth looking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened is when we went out there, she it was the second time she'd been with the project, to do the project. Uh, she partners with FACT, who are Family AIDS Caring Trust, and they work with families, uh, people who are affected by HIV and or AIDS. Um, and so we worked with a group of vulnerable young people, 18 to 24. And so Natalie delivered a business and enterprise skills workshops to 50 young people, men and women, mm-hmm. then 18 of them were chosen to join me for my sewing skills workshop. Okay. And the reason I chose, uh, I chose to teach them how to make bags. And the reason we chose that is because if you're running a sewing business, bags are, you use a small amount of fabric, you can upcycle fabric, yeah. you can recycle fabric. Yeah. And it's something that isn't a big outlay. And it, you can make those things um, to go alongside uh, what else you're doing mm-hmm. uh, they're quicker to make that kind of thing mm-hmm. so it's also about recycling it's about sustainable fashion um, I don't know whether you know I did a post recently about the fact that we had visited a bero which is means second hand which there are a lot of uh, those in Zimbabwe where the bales of let me get this right so the, char- the clothing charities sell bales of clothing that they haven't managed to sell in 
the US or in Europe yeah. to places in Africa. It's not just Zimbabwe, but... Yeah, I'm know. sure Uganda banned it. Right, right. Because people are sending second-hand underwear. How disrespectful is that? But often it's, it's clothing that uh, you can only sell for a few dollars. It's not, it's not um, uh, recyclable. It's not biodegradable. No. That's, so it ends up in Africa, on African soil in landfill. So what is really important, sustainability is really important. There's two things. People who are giving their clothes to charity need to think again about what they're giving. Um, and, and we need to think, in the Western world, we need to think about how we use our clothes and that kind of thing. But and our also, consumer, our consumerism, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. But also about, you know, in Zimbabwe, um, those particular businesses, you can use those clothing. Yeah. They'll be used for them. So that's yeah. what we need to do. And it was it was an amazing experience. It was I was I was outside my comfort zone because I wasn't in control. Mm-hmm. So even down to booking my flights, you know, Natalie booked my flights. Okay. Uh, at, the, at the airport, I didn't. It, you know, I, I was knew, so anxious. Yeah, I was. I was. I was worried. I had to literally let go of any concept you know uh, anything I knew in a sense so Natalie told me for example we went there for Zimbabwe's winter so Zimbabwe's winter uh, it's hot in the daytime but it's freezing at night and I remember when Natalie told me and she said oh bring leggings in a in a a jump, a, you know, a hoodie and that kind of thing and socks and I did but I remember thinking I said this to her Oh, she's exaggerating. That mm-hmm. might be just, she was not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. She was not mucking about. So little things like that kind of thing. The scarcity of Wi-Fi when you're used to turning on your laptop, looking at your phone, and yep. it, that was you know a struggle. Yep. Sometimes there were power cuts. Um, so we and it gets dark at quarter to six, six o'clock at night. Yep. In so it was little things like that. Plus going into a situation where if you've already got imposter syndrome and you already think oh I'm you know what what possible what possible help am I going to be there that kind of thing and you're not necessarily knowing whether you're going to be of any use mm-hmm. all of those things kind of add up but it was amazing Natalie is a quite an amazing facilitator I learned lots from her her business skills workshop lots of things that I intended and intend sorry to implement when I got back yeah. and I've had to give myself a break because I I turned that into a you know kind of I need to do this and I yep, need to do that yep, yep, yep. underestimated how difficult it would be to, to get to get back into the routine of things when I got home mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, so she, she allowed me to teach some of the bits that she did I did a lot of the kind of icebreaker games and things like that which you know I really enjoyed doing but then I had six days of teaching sewing myself uh, and that was that was when I came into my own I, I I was so scared about it and so worried about it I remember on the first day I wore one of my late aunt's skirts that I really like say in saying to myself in the mirror you know you're going to come with me you're going to help me do Channel this her. Yeah. and um it was amazing that they they were so receptive. Um, I don't know. I just love teaching and mm-hmm. I love serving and mm-hmm. the opportunity to do them both, you know, and and also to be what I felt was helping um, these young people yeah. just, develop skills that would help them yeah, to sustain it just, themselves. It was just 
it was an amazing opportunity mm. and I, I feel privileged and I, I would I'll say it here now I would do it again I think that's a measure of whether you enjoyed something whether wow. you did yeah definitely so, uh, so thinking about you were talking about um, Natalie and her business yeah. workshop that she did over there mm. in, in Zimbabwe and I'm thinking about when you first had your stall at your daughter's school fair and you were selling bags for £15 and you are now in a position where this is your business, your livelihood. Yeah. How have you gone from like charging what you're worth? Because quite often it's something that we're really scared to do. Um, I've got a group of friends that I communicate with a lot on um, WhatsApp and um, they support me where necessary they question me where I'm doing some kind of madness and I was really really nervous about my pricing and they were like you can't just think about your friends you've got to think about the products that you're making the time that it takes the cost da, 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 da. you've got to charge what they're worth so I ran off right got to charge what they're worth and had to like really coax myself and um still the full price is less than what the calculations say it should be but I also had to do what I was comfortable with how have you gone from a place where you were charging what you um could to what you're worth now okay so I did several things I had an open house uh one year three years ago I think and I had decided to make some clothes I'd made uh, some I've designed some upcycled, so using upcycled uh, Hessian sacks and African print Ankara fabric. Mm -hmm. And my daughter came, one of my daughters came, and they were great. They were wonderful, and they sold. And um, my daughter came and saw the display, and she sat and she said, Mum, you're not charging enough. And I went, yeah, but I don't know what to do. And often my, my charging was based on what I would pay, which, is, of course, is rubbish because I wouldn't buy them. So that makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. And well, I, you do bespoke pieces. Yeah, and I, these are one-offs. Mm -hmm. So all the people who bought them have one-off pieces. Uh, and, I, and I thought, I was scared. I, it, there's no getting around it. I was scared. So anyway, she, she said, you have to find a way of getting out there. You've got to find a customer. So I said, I don't know. Honestly, I didn't know what to do, and I, I, I believe I burst into tears because that was my default mode at the time. So then um, I reached out to someone called Aretha Rutherford, and she is a business. No, I reached out to her because I wanted to ask her if she knew anybody who would be able to coach me um, into uh reach my potential let's say mm -hmm. and she got back to me and basically said it just so happens that we've just started a business and this is what we're going to do we're doing creative co business is it business coaching for mm -hmm. creative so I and she was starting out so I went to see her and I this all happened around the time I was also I'd just left work so I was floundering with my not being a teacher status thing as well mm -hmm. And I was, I thought I was going into, I was anxious and depressed. There was a lot going on. And also my aunt passed away. She became ill and then she passed away. So a lot of things happened in one year. And Aretha helped me 
to recognise that what was important was that I did what I loved. And so if I was leaving teaching, my idea was I don't want to spend the next 50 years of my life doing something I don't love. Mm -hmm. So this is my ideal opportunity to create a life that I love, a life that I want to live. And at the time I was still making bags and that was my primary business. And she was very clever because what she did without telling me that bags isn't what the way I need to go, I worked out that if I want to do what I love, what I love is relationship. I love is talking to women. I love is empowering women. Again, a bit of a cliched word, word but we could get over it. Yeah. What I love is creating. I love singing. So it made sense. Somehow she helped me to realise that what I loved doing most was actually working with people. And that meant making, if I was going to make things that went off, you know, went on my website and were retail, it was too impersonal for me. Mm-hmm. But takes time and it takes money yeah I did a few things I joined um, there's a there's a website called Creative Choices I think it's called Creative Choices yeah anyway and they I get emails from them and they send out um, like little online online courses you did mm-hmm. the best things I did was one of their online courses about how to price how to cost your work and that frightened the shite out of me I'm not going to lie because difference between what I was exactly so needed to charge I was like no one's gonna buy that yeah no come to me how am I gonna do that yeah but the biggest thing I did was I waited I I stopped I learned to say no so people would say can you run a, run this up for me and I would say it'll cost this and they would say oh I can't afford that that's too expensive and I would say okay, I hope, I wish you luck with finding someone else. And they, the thing is, is that I'm a service. People come to me for me as well, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because they want, they want to be made to feel special because they are special. And they want me to make something that no one else has, that every time they look at it, it's going to make them happy. Every time they feel try it on they're going to feel a certain way they're going to remember a happy time so there's lots of things in with that and that come that takes time mm-hmm. and so what I had to learn was my own self-worth and I had to recognize that if I'm going to work with people they need to be people who recognize that this is my time I'm giving up and my skill and that comes at a price and it's been hard and yes. it's still hard and I always yes. get that a slight flutter in my stomach when yeah. I get an email through and someone has gone on my website and they've put in I've got you know I've got a certain amount of money or how much will it cost it yeah. or something that says can you make this which is my least favourite thing uh, you know because I then have to be very rigid mm-hmm. so my rigidity, rigidity is around insisting that people email me only my rigidity is around asking them to fill in the answer certain questions and come be upfront about their budget mm-hmm. and I will only give people a quote because I can only give people a quote until after I've met them because we need to have a conversation about why you're doing this there are plenty of people who work who can make something there's lots of people who can make things um, 
there are lots of people who can run something up. That's that, but that's not what I'm about. Mm-hmm. And when I first started doing it, I thought I was up myself, and I called myself a bespoke clothier because I felt that that sounded posh. <laughs> I felt that that would, you know, and of course all that meant is people went, uh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You're expensive. So I'm grateful to um, my friend, Richard, uh, for calling me out and saying, no, you need to say fashion designer because that's exactly what you do. And then it gives people the opportunity to find out a bit more about you and then whether they're for you or not. So it's hard because... The, the but the pricing that worry about the pricing I don't think it's ever gone away I still worry about being too being too expensive or not expensive enough yeah 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 I still worry about that I still feel that I have a way to go but for me the key has been patience it's mm-hmm. been not scram uh, um, faith that if I wait the right people will come to me if yeah. I can to do what I'm doing what is for me will come to me exactly that's my that's my faith yeah and I say no to one person someone else will come along exactly that faith and I've had months with no clients I've had times when I've thought is this the right thing to do and I thought maybe I should just go back and get another teaching job you know I've I've had I I go through that at times yeah Um, and then something happens yeah always always and and it's fun and then they say yes and yeah do a little happy dance yeah 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 Yeah. and it works yeah Um, and i'm hoping that more of those times will come yeah i i have less of those Mm -hmm. uh, moments of oh i may as well just give up who Mm -hmm. do i think i am Mm -hmm. and i'm not really a fashion designer i should just i should do honestly and Mm -hmm. it that self-doubt is a it's a bugger, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, listen, the, on Sunday I released information about my retreat, and um, I had to give myself That's a pep talk. I'm yeah, to you're away. It is what it is. Exactly. There, there will be more, but the pep talk I had to give myself. I talked myself in, out, in, out, in, out. Who do I think I am? What do I think I'm doing? And I had to really just remind myself of everything that has led to this moment, because it's not just the retreat. It's the work and thought behind yeah. it yeah. and I had to remind myself that actually I was a local authority social worker for yes. 15 years and within that role I was constantly curating a team of people based on the family's needs I was constantly coaching and mentoring families trying to assist them to develop tools and plans that they could apply every day to their lives so the multidisciplinary team psychologist psychiatrist dietitian this person that person they were very theory heavy they were very um, academic and I was the person that broke it down into a plan so that people could see how they could apply it to their life every day sadly because of the deeply entrenched beliefs and behaviors of some of them they weren't able to um and also because the government just doesn't give you enough time to do the work in the way that you need to do it but I had to remind myself that this retreat is a um version of what I was doing all the time and it's not fancy flouncy instagrammable when I said this is an instagrammable it's transformational I'm not even joking. Each of the women that are delivering a workshop 
I know for sure that they are going to deliver something that will transform your life. Maybe not on Sunday, the 9th of September, maybe not on the 12th of January, but at some point in time, those things are going to bubble up and make perfect sense. But for a lot of people that are coming, well, a lot, there's only 12 spaces, but for the people that are coming who understand the power of this work, they will walk out with a physical plan that they will be able to integrate every day if they choose to. But I think also what you're saying about um, not knowing, not remembering what you can do. I forgot that I have 28 years teaching experience. I forgot that I have 40 years of sewing experience. I forgot that I've been making clothes all along. It's that fear of getting it wrong. Yep. Um, And I think that... um, you know, you, we forget that we have all these skills. Yep. They're skills that you couldn't necessarily write down. You just know that you're good at them. I know that I'm good at making women feel special. I know that I'm good in conversation. I know that I'm an excellent seamstress. I know that there are lots of things that I don't know, and I'm keen to learn. Um, and I think that the privilege that I have is being able to use all of those skills in, in my business. Yep in my life because at the end of the day this is my life this yes is, it's however many years i'm around yes this is doing what i love yes ever it's like your life's work yeah and i have other i have plans to do other things i want to do other things i have lots of skills i'm excited about the next however many years they are yeah and i as well live it now yes rather than wait and be scared just in case i've, yeah. I've you know, I, I always describe myself as a plodder. I was, wasn't trying to, you know, set the world on fire, but mm-hmm. actually what was was fear. That was me scared of people, these people that I made up, you know, that, that row of spectators yep. that I were watching me that yep. couldn't, you know, w- laughing at me and saying, who does she, she think she is and all that kind of stuff. So I'm nodding emphatically. Yeah, I, yeah. I, and, and as I said before, if I do it, you never know who's watching you. Exactly. And the I get, you know, yeah. conversations I have with people who have noticed something that I was just getting on with, you know, the things people said when I went to Zimbabwe and I, it wasn't brave, it wasn't, it was just something I was going to do. It's just, mm-hmm. just being me. Yeah. You never know who you're influencing, who is looking at you and thinking, well, if she can do that, I can do that too. And for me, obviously, what's important is that my girls can see that they can do whatever they want to do if they put their mind to it. Yeah, definitely. So, so thinking about um, where you're happy and getting to a place where you are more able to uh, charge what you're worth and, and understand your value, um, thinking about um, those things, all of those things contribute to wellness. How do you, well, what do you do and how do you integrate wellness with your day-to-day life? Um, Okay, so I have a routine. Uh, It involves a large glass of water. Mm -hmm. So every day I, okay, so I was, I had some health, physical health issues. It feels like when I left school, everything visited me. So... I uh, fell down a hole. I injured my yeah. That's that. Actually, that sounds as bad as it was. It wasn't as in not my whole body, but certainly I fell yeah. and I injured myself. 
which meant that the next few years I had difficulties walking. Remember, I was a dancer, so I had difficulties teaching. Uh, Do you mean when you left school, when you were like school age or when you left no, no, school no, as a teacher? In that January of that year, I fell into a hole left by the Christmas tree that the council had taken out. Uh, There was a piano outside uh, the station and I was listening to somebody play it and he finished and I clapped and I turned and I didn't see this hole because I wasn't expecting to be there and I ended up in it on the floor in front of a load of traffic and people. And so I lay there thinking, what just happened? And then I got up, somebody helped me up and I went, carried on, and I was sat in the cafe, and I burst into tears, <laughs> which is a theme. Yeah. And someone said to me, you must go and take a picture. And so I went back and took a picture, and I contacted various people, and they all absolved responsibility. But my point is that th- then my health started to get worse, but because physical health. Mm-hmm. So when I went to the doctors, I was talking to the doctor about the fact that I was suffering from anxiety and depression. So the fact that I was physically unwell was kind of way down my list following year various difficulties i my eldest daughter and her partner went traveling for six months in southeast asia and my aunt had passed away and she left us some money mm-hmm. and it was my youngest daughter's birthday 21st birthday so we decided all to travel to meet them and i booked a villa and i booked you know spent all the money and we had a, a pool i love swimming I got in the pool and I did one length and I couldn't swim anymore. And I was devastated because I had such pains up and down my legs. So I sat with the girls and talked about it. Uh, I went to, we were in yoga as well. We were in uh, yoga, we were at a yoga place in Ubud in Bali. Mm-hmm. I planned to do all the, all the lessons, all the classes. And I went into this yoga therapy club, the yoga, restorative yoga class. And I could do a third. Everything hurt. Wow. Afterwards, I spoke to the instructor, lovely woman, and again, started crying. I said, you know, this is my life. I left left teaching and I thought I was going to be the fittest person around. I've always been very in touch with what I do with my body and I can't do anything. And she suggested yoga therapy. She said, go back to London and uh, research yoga therapy. So I did that. And I found a place in Islington called the Life Centre, which and yoga therapy for those who don't know is basically a series of small exercises and breathing that are tailored specifically to your injury. And I tell everybody about it, and it they absolutely swear by it. And the premises of it is breathing properly. We don't breathe properly. We breathe shallow, in a shallow way. Um, and this is about using your entire breath. And so I incorporate that. Long story short, I can now walk. Because I had a stick at one point. So Bloody I'm, hell, Karen. I had a walking stick. It's bonkers now when I think about it. Um, so every day I, I journal for 15 minutes. I set my alarm so I don't go too far, you know. And I read for 15 minutes whatever I happen to be reading. Sometimes it's a business book. Sometimes it's a fiction book. Mm-hmm. But it's really and then I go downstairs and I make myself some lemon tea, which I credit with getting rid of my hay fever, but that might be another conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I set up my living room so I can meditate, but my 
I used to think meditation was like sitting cross-legged and burning incense. And yep. It's not that. It's whatever you want it to be, basically. Mm-hmm. So mine is lying down. And then I do that for 20 minutes. I set my alarm. And then I um, do some stretching, because stretching is really important to mm-hmm. me. And as I get it's become even more important. Yes. Uh, so I do some basic yoga stretches. And then I do it outside if it's warm. And if it's not, I sit in my room and I do an affirmation, which when I first started doing it, I felt really silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brain was like, F off, Tam. And I was like, you yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah, but now I... I I talk to myself every day and it's great. I am, you know, they are all the I ams. Yep. Then I tell the universe that I'm, I sound like some kook. No. <laughs> well, I'm with you. I could, look, you said yoga therapy. I'm like, yeah, check. check. Affirmation, anyway, check. <laughs> I, I, I do three, uh, name three things I'm grateful for. And I send three great things out into the world. Mm-hmm. So look after this person. If yeah. They're traveling or, help this person do this that kind of thing and then I get on with my day and that takes about an hour and I, I don't do anything you know quickly so mm-hmm. I feel that in order for me to I found that if you don't spend that hour being silent and thinking about me and doing me and stretching that the rest of my day goes to pot mm-hmm. on the whole there are a few more things I should do should ah, that word <laughs> Things that I would like to incorporate that I found that when I do them, they work for me. And one of them is, this is my, the business coach told me this, Aretha. She said, write down three, uh, the night before, write down three things that will make you a winner the next day. Okay. So I make one of them to do with your business. So it might be, you know, when I was ill, it might be, you know, get dressed, (laughs) you know. But now it might be... um, draft a blog post or email five people or that kind do you see what I mean yeah yeah yeah. and I found that writing that list either first thing in the morning but for me it's better at night actually because first thing in the morning I'm it's it's kind of too late for me yes 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 so the night before if I do three if I do that then I get up knowing what I'm going to do so once I've done my all the stuff Mm -hmm. and I shower and whatever the rest of my day is it might be going to the studio it might be going to meet someone whatever it might be it means I'm more grounded yeah I'm calmer yeah and I also find that journaling means the other thing about journaling for me people use it in different ways but for me if I don't journal I lie in bed and I worry Mm. I'm a worrier Mm -hmm. so I will lie in bed and I will spend an hour or for half an hour thinking about lots of things when actually what I need to do is sit up and dump uh, it vomit it onto yep onto a piece of paper so at some point I'm saying okay so how do I feel how do I feel today am I anxious? what's going on what am I worried about and that just makes me feel better just getting it out of my head mm-hmm. and then I can get on with the rest of my day yeah so that works for me yeah some people like to journal at night Uh, yeah sometimes I just get it in where I can get it in but there are some nights where it has to be at night even if I've even if I journaled in the morning because there are things that I need to and it's not necessarily a challenging thing it might be I'm just so excited about something I need to get that down so that I can actually go to sleep I find myself I sleep well so I'd find myself just falling asleep. So I used to read at night and not and like read one page. So I found that the morning 
that it's worked a, much, much, yeah, much better. Yeah, yeah. In Zimbabwe, I did the morning, but I also had a separate journal, which was just Zimbabwe stuff. Okay. That I want to actually write, you know, put into something. I don't know what. Oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. That was, that was my experience of Zimbabwe and what was going on mm-hmm. and what went right and what went wrong and how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Morning was, was my usual kind of journaling thing. Yeah. But I think for me, um, I do like a routine. And remember, you know, 28 years of listening to the Pips and Belgo, suddenly not having oh, that. Yeah, of course. I floundered. That first year after I stopped teaching was horrible because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I'm guilty. The structure. Nothing. So everybody thought I was off all the time uh, or that I'd retired. But that guilt at feeling like, oh, well, I'm not actually doing anything. It's because I wasn't getting up in the morning, going to work, ground running, you know, fighting because I was doing that. Yeah. This life now is less I like a structure but it's less structured and it's it's filled with things that I can change around if I want to like you do yeah 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 and meditation and the routine and everything helps me to have some kind of structure and it works for my mental health because I'm feeling great Good, good. So thinking about feeling great then before we draw to a close, even though I could just talk and talk and talk to you all day long, I talk a lot about everyday joy. What does everyday joy mean to you? Well, every, for me, it's first of all, it, it, for me, the definition is finding something that makes you feel good. Um, and it, for me, it's little things. So my everyday joy, I do... I'm loving this weather and I do like to stand barefoot on my grass mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie I'm lucky I have a garden Yeah. and so I do like to go outside and breathe and stand on the you know feel my toes on the grass again sounding a bit like someone who's going to run off and live <laughs> in, the, in the forest somewhere tree hugging yeah I do I think my mother is a uh, she, she loves to walk outside and I think that I've got now that I don't before I used to walk to get from A to B because I always walk fast now I don't have to walk fast yeah. per se yeah. I enjoy the actual process I'm lucky that we live near a park yeah. so we live between two stations one is a concrete walk and one is the park walk wow but I like the park walk yeah yeah. so for me yeah. everyday joy is finding joy in little things and that I really, really love and I missed in Zimbabwe is fresh coffee mm. um, I only have one if I have one I have one a day and the smell mm-hmm. something about the sitting down to drink it and smelling it and I love mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, so that's everyday joy that's, yeah. that's, but I, I have more time to do that now um, and I, I wish I don't wish I suppose you know it would have been nice to discover it before but I didn't have the space in my life to discover exactly exactly I think I advocate that for people who do live busy lives something that you should make you say we're too busy but actually you should make the time to try that is the thing like I listen to um Oprah Winfrey Super Soul Sunday podcast and her opening sentence is the most valuable gift you can give yourself is time and 
I really do strongly believe that. And I know, you know, there are people that have um, very small children and they're unpredictable. They might not sleep at night. They make up, wake up really early sometimes and, and whatever else. And I think that if, if, if you take a moment to look at your day, you will be able to identify some pockets of time where you're able to give yourself that precious time. And it doesn't have to be... You, you give yourself an hour, which is wonderful. There are some people who genuinely cannot see how they'll be able to give themselves an hour. But I think even if it was five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is that you can eke out just to give yourself that time. I remember when I was working in a particular local authority and I didn't really want to spend my lunch time. Well, we didn't take lunch times, that's the thing. When you work in teaching and those sorts of work we don't um we feel we feel like we're cheating if we're taking a lunch break but I got to a point where I was feeling so depleted that I needed to so I would literally just go into my car at lunchtime for 15 minutes wind the windows down and read a book or listen to a podcast or listen to um I love um Robert Elms on BBC Radio London so I'd listen to a little bit of his show and that really helped give me the boost I needed to go through the rest of the day and that that takes a strength of character as well I think that because we we've been conditioned to think that when we take time for ourselves that's 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 selfish and I know that that's becoming more different but at the same time um because I used I realized that that's what I did when I was was teaching is that I I lived near the school so I would insist on leaving come home for lunch I wouldn't take my lunch to school so I'd leave the building and that became I be, people thought I was a little bit difficult because I wouldn't go to any meetings at lunchtime uh, because my lunch was at home unless it was like a union meeting or stuff like that but for me stepping into my home even if I just lay up some people actually lay sorry Karen <laughs> I need. I'm moving this in. Sod it. I need a studio. I need somewhere to go to be able to record this because my house can be like a train station sometimes. Hold on. I'm just going to try and find a bit more and hope that the Wi-Fi doesn't um, drop off. I think we should be okay. Yeah. So, um, and I look at that. People thought that you were difficult because you didn't want to have a meeting in your lunch break. Yeah, yeah. So I would go, and it, and the lunch break was only, well, it was four to five minutes, but it, by the time it, it was like half an hour. So I had thirty minutes of absolute silence in my house, and it was, and it, I think it got me through the next, you know, three years before I eventually it was too much. But I think that, um, and I realised that now I'm in a privileged. You know, privileged position in that I can take time for myself. Mm-hmm. But the stress that I have in my life is stress that I've created. It's yeah. not. It's a different stress yeah. completely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I think you're right. And there was something that um, when I first started teaching somebody, I don't know. We went to some inset, and somebody mentioned something about having a golden golden moment about taking seven minutes. I don't know why it was seven minutes, but putting a a poster on the outside of your office saying the golden moment time do not disturb mm-hmm. and you literally just sat and closed your eyes in silence 
Mm. It's a kind of form of meditation. This is like 20 years ago now. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking that was ridiculous because yep. I couldn't seven minutes. Well... <laughs> And I know people still that think that they haven't got seven minutes, five minutes, whatever the case is. And um, I know from looking at my own, the use of my day, when um, I decided that I was going to try to commit to a quote-unquote morning practice, which isn't as big a deal as it sounds, but um, I thought to myself, if I've got time to be scrolling on Instagram, checking what's going on on whatever social media platform, if I scaled that back, I'm I'm not saying that I don't do that because I do enjoy it, um, and it's a place where I meet people like you, it's a place that I use for business, it's a place that I use for connection... But if I scaled it back and was a bit more meaningful about what I was doing on there, then I would have the time to be able to do stuff that is really, really going to light me up. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that for me that's helped is I don't turn my phone or I try not to turn my phone on before I finish my practice and I turn it off at a certain time at night. Yeah. So I will get in bed and I will scroll and scroll and upset myself because somebody's doing something better than I am. <sighs> or they're lighting up the world and I'm sitting here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make loads of sales, and I have then, or someone's got a book deal, or whatever. Yes, you know. Yes, and, yeah. And I tell you what, one of the great things about being away and not being being able to access Wi-Fi in the way I wanted to is that actually I didn't have any of that because I couldn't. Exactly. So sometimes my phone was only on so I could take pictures. Yep, 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 yep. That's almost a relief it, in a way. Listen, I'll say it very b- bluntly and base in a very basic way but minding your own business is the key to success and there's a lot of stuff that we get our knickers in a bunch about that have knacker all to do with us so we just need to mind our business and keep focused yeah yeah no you're right right. (laughs) and you know that there's room for all of us exactly there's room for all of us and as my friend leah says not everything's for everybody that's you know (laughs) you know you know that's it so karen how what have you got coming up have you got any classes courses or something so uh, every everything is on my website i you can you can the thing the beauty of my website and what i do is that you can book me anytime you can uh, go onto my website you can look in the section under bespoke uh, and book a consultation or you can also book a class a mobile class and I will come to you if you are London based um, so I, in I, essence then sorry if I wanted yeah. to have like a um, if I was having I don't know it was my birthday and I wanted to do something different and I wanted to book you for a sewing class okay I could do that yeah you okay. could do that okay you, and you can book with a friend as well okay do you know the, I'm flexible like that. I'm, you know, I'm a qualified teacher and I'm CRB checked and all the rest of it. So I can do lots of things, but ultimately everything is on my website. Okay. I'm also, I've got a couple of talks coming up. Uh, one of which is for features in 15. They wanted to hear all about, um, my adventures in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. So I think that's on the 30th of August, but I'll have to check. And I'm going to launch this ebook, and I may have to pick some brains about how to do it, but I'm going to do it. Yes, please do. And please let me know when you're doing it. I think, um, and I'm proud of it, so I'd like to share, basically. I can't wait for it. I'm, I'm really I'll looking forward. Try. Yes, please. Um, for those of us that don't know, what's your website address? 
So my website is uh, www.redskin.co.uk. My social media is all the same. So it's at Redskin UK, R-E-D-D-S-K-I-N-U-K on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Fantastic. I hope, well, I don't hope, I implore you all to check <laughs> out Karen's website and her social media. So, am, Karen, thank you again for your time. Thank and, you uh, for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it and I love your podcast. Oh, thank I, you. I love listening to it. So I'm, I feel very honoured to be part of, you know, uh, part of your journey. Thank you. I'm honoured to have you. And I'm not saying that in that thing that we do when we rebut compliments because we feel so insecure and inadequate that we've got to but yeah no definitely I just thought I, I knew I knew even before I knew that I was going to call this 360 as soon as I knew what I was going to be about I knew that I was going to ask you to be on my podcast so we've made it happen thank you very much yay and good luck with your retreat oh thank you thank you uh, thank and you I will be at the next one Perfect. I cannot wait to deliver that. All right then, darling. Take care. Bye. Have a lovely day. Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the 360 podcast. We can continue the conversation on social media using the hashtags Live360 and Everyday Joy. I hope to see you on my social media channel. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, like, comment, rate, and share this podcast wherever you're listening. 360 Conversations is produced by me, Tammy Thomas. Podcast music produced by James Anderson. I look forward to engaging with you next time.